Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, October 16th, and we're kicking off our Pitch a Stock theme week across Industry Focus. So today, it's one sector and three stocks. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined in the studio for this very special episode by my colleague and good friend, Dylan Lewis. How's it going, Michael? It's great. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. You know, catching you do that intro, I realized that we all have a slightly different cadence with how we say the intro. And I was like, I was waiting for it to hit kind of the tones that mine do. Mm-hmm. And it's just different. We, I, you know, I listened to your show and I noticed that, but I, I think I caught it even more being in the studio with you. Well, you know, it's all in the company name, right? The Motley Fool. It's that kind of deep <laughs> analysis that people tune in for. Absolutely. You know? That's uh, that's what we're known for here. But we will talk stocks. Absolutely. So, so first off, though, a little background on this Pitch a Stock theme week. Fool.com is around 100 freelance and contract writers and editors around the world, and I mean legitimately around the world. And each year we invite them to Fool headquarters for our annual writers conference. This year, we figured we'd take advantage of the fact that they were here and have three writers per sector each pitch us a stock. We'll be hearing about MasterCard, ticker symbol MA, from Matt Cochran, Square, ticker symbol SQ, from Matt Frankel, and Berkshire Hathaway, ticker symbol BRK-B. Well, there's also a BRK-A, but those shares cost legitimately a quarter of a million dollars apiece, so I'm going to bet that most people are interested in the B shares, from Dan Kaplinger. After each pitch, Dylan and I will share our thoughts for a few minutes before going on to the next one. Now, here's the thing. We don't have enough time in this episode to really dig into the nitty-gritty with each company. Fortunately for our prep, we gathered some really top-notch resources that you can use if you want to learn more about MasterCard, Square, or Berkshire Hathaway. And if you want those, just drop us a note at industryfocus@fool.com. We'll be happy to send them along, and that can help you really learn more about each of those stocks if you're interested in kind of better examining them for your investing portfolio. And listeners, I'm going to hop in here and give you a little insight into the Industry Focus team and some of the dynamics because Michael, Michael's a great host, but Michael gets kind. a ton of fan mail and a lot of responses to his callouts for articles and such things. And so he pitched this to us as like, oh, this is great deliverable. Like, this is just Michael wanting to get more and more emails about the shows <laughs> that he does. He got, I mean, I love that the listeners are super engaged and super interested in the stuff that you talked about, but that J&J Pfizer thing for healthcare, um, the dividend aristocrats deliverable, mm-hmm. you are crushing it right now. Thank you. Yes, feed my ego, dear listeners, please. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. I think I think we're sending people good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's great that we have so much good content out there that we can then pass along to people, you know, as you better learn the stock market. But I do like to rib you for your desperate pleas for listener approval. <laughs> so desperate. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and roll that MasterCard pitch from Matt Cochran. Greetings, fools. I'm Matthew Cochran, and I generally write for the fintech and payment industries for the Motley Fool. Today, I'd like to talk about MasterCard Incorporated, listed on the New York Stock Exchange as stock ticker MA. What is MasterCard? What exactly do they do? I find a lot of confusion generally exists about exactly what MasterCard's business model is. Do they loan money to customers? Are they a bank? Are they a credit card company? I think it's best to think of them as a giant payment network or toll road for your money. And every time your money uses this toll road, MasterCard collects tiny fees based on the number of transactions across their network, the the payment volume across their network, which is basically how much the items cost that were or services that cost that were purchased using their network. And it's a great business model. It's asset light, it's high margin, and it's why MasterCard has been able to return 3,000% to shareholders since 2006. 
uh, and it generated about 85% of MasterCard's revenues last quarter. But what I think makes MasterCard such a unique opportunity today is that 15% of other revenues that MasterCard generates that's not from its payment network. MasterCard calls these revenues in its earning presentation other revenues. They really hype them up. Um, and it's been growing. It counted for almost $700 million of revenue last quarter, which was good enough for an 18% year-over-year revenue growth in that category. And basically what it is is MasterCard's able to bundle together a lot of services uh, for data analytics, reward program management, and security features that they can bundle together and sell to financial institutions and merchants that exist outside of these banks and, and merchants' core competencies. So they're happy to pay MasterCard for these services. For instance, some of this stuff is is bleeding at bleeding cutting edge stuff. Uh, for instance, one of their most recent acquisitions was New Data Security. And what New Data Security does, it uses passive biometrics to determine if a purchase was fraudulent or not. Passive biometrics is things like how you type in your credit card number on your keyboard when you make a purchase online, or how you hold your smartphone when you make a purchase on your smartphone. And, uh, and, and merchants love this because it doesn't add any extra inconvenience to the customer, but it adds an extra layer of security for the merchant. Uh, and like I said, it's grown 18% year over year. But more importantly, it's giving MasterCard an edge now in winning new deals. Last quarter, MasterCard announced new deals with Banco Santander, uh, Kroger's, Toys R Us, Belks. And in the conference call, CEO AJ Benga credited these services that MasterCard can offer as the differentiator in winning these new deals. I quote, in each of these deals, our innovative solutions and value-added services were key differentiators for us. So basically, what you have in MasterCard, you have a company with a history of market-crushing returns, you have a company winning new deals, and at its recent investor day, it raised revenue guidance for the rest of the year. What do I call this kind of combination in an investment opportunity? I call it priceless. So we're going to try not to make any other priceless puns for the rest of this show, but I'm not sure if we'll be able to restrain ourselves. I think one's good. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> three he, is maybe a little too much. He slipped that one in there really nicely. Yeah. That was a really nice way to kind of put a bow on his pitch there. Yeah. Um, and, but if we do any more, it's it's overkill. And I, I think Matthew Cochran is a name that listeners should probably get to know a little bit. He, mm-hmm. He's an excellent writer for Fool.com. Um, and one of the beauties of this, you know, this pitch week is that we have some voices and some companies being discussed um, that don't normally get on the show. Right. So hopefully we'll get a little bit more of him down the road, particularly because the fintech space is a very interesting one. And a great opportunity for you and I to collaborate more and more. Love it. <laughs> on industry focus. So let's talk about MasterCard a little bit. So it's the second largest payment processing network in the world. Number one, not surprisingly, is Visa. And one of the real benefits of that is that sort of network effect, right? When you go to a restaurant, usually they're accepting Visa and MasterCard. Maybe they accept Discover, maybe they accept Amex, but you're really almost always going to have those two. Yeah, and Amex is almost prohibitively expensive mm-hmm. for a lot of people to accept. Um, and you talk about that as the network effect. I also look at that as a major barrier to entry and something that really solidifies them in the payment space, right? For them to have built out this infrastructure, it makes it a lot harder to compete there because it's expensive to do that. So they have all of this great legacy work kind of already laid out. And you're noticing that while there are other payment entrants coming into the space, they're kind of piggybacking on a lot of this rather than kind of innovate and, and, and establish that infrastructure themselves. Right. One of the other things that Matt pointed out in his pitch, and I thought it was very, very well noted by him, was this sort of other revenues piece. 
know, it's still a relatively small part of the business, but if it's helping MasterCard begin to win away business from competitors, so sort of build and strengthen that moat, that's a win on its own. And secondly, the fact of the matter is that diversifying in any way that is profitable is a good thing. And so if MasterCard is able to sort of bundle some of these other benefits, that is just across the board a win. So, you know, we mentioned that MasterCard and Visa are the two major players of credit cards. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything in your view that really separates the two of them? Uh, is it that MasterCard's investing in a lot of things that Visa isn't? Um, or is there anything that's particularly compelling about MasterCard rather than Visa? So, I'm a MasterCard shareholder and not a Visa shareholder. And So, that was like the perfect question. <laughs> <laughs> right. Great question. Um, I think that a big piece of it is their investment in some of these other revenues areas that Matt really highlighted. And What's interesting to me is that you know MasterCard has held down its profitability for a long time to, to make these investments and other investments in its infrastructure, and you can see those beginning to really start paying off. So if you go all the way back to 2012, I was a year out of college. Revenue at MasterCard was 7.4 billion dollars. In the trailing 12 months, revenues jumped up to 11.4 billion dollars. So that's a growth of 55 percent. Not not at a compound angle. Not, not at a compound angle, but just, just across total, the yes, you know, but still incredibly impressive. Right. In those five years, they've grown revenue by fifty-five percent. Net income, they've grown by fifty-nine percent. So you can tell then the margins are starting to increase a little bit. But for me, the real impressive piece is that diluted earnings per share have increased by eighty-four percent from two dollars and nineteen cents in two thousand twelve to four dollars and three cents over the trailing twelve months. That really highlights their work to buy back shares, and so decrease share count, and then also, again, improve that operating leverage so that they are able to more effectively deploy every dollar that they get in the top line and bring that down to the bottom line. And for me, that's just a really attractive long-term opportunity for the company. Well, and it sounds like, you know, in, in looking at how they've allocated capital and, and looking to buy back shares, and how they've kind of strategically set up their business, mm-hmm. this is management looking long-term. This is a company that's kind of building itself for decades. Absolutely. And with that, actually, based off all the stuff that we've discussed and more, Daniel Sparks, who's one of our really well-respected writers in tech, uh, argues that MasterCard could easily double its dividend in the coming five years. So uh, I'm happy to shoot you the link to that article if you're. <laughs> I interested. can't help but laugh now. Now that we talked about your, <laughs> your pining it's, for it's a approval. really it's a really good <laughs> article. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. And again, as a MasterCard shareholder with a dividend of sub one percent, I'm always interested in seeing if there's an opportunity to grow that. So email us at industryfocusatfull.com. We'll be happy to send that along. Michael will be happy to send that off. Yes, yes, he will. <laughs> All right, let's turn to Square. Hey, this is Matt Frankel, financial sector analyst at The Motley Fool. Um, I'm picking Square as my pitch for the day. Uh, Square is a company that provides payment solutions to small and medium-sized businesses. And a lot of people think Square is kind of expensive right now because the stock's gone up about you know 140% just in this year alone. But I think that that's well justified and there could be a lot more room to go. In the past year alone, their payment volume's up by over 30%. They've opened up a whole, whole new lines of revenue. Um, their Square Capital lending program is almost doubled, in, up about 70% in the past year. Um, they're actually in the process of opening up their own bank so they can loan directly to their customers, and they're just doing a great job of creating a, a kind of ecosystem of services to provide to small and medium-sized businesses. They're own. They're in five countries around the world. They just expanded to the UK. And there's a lot of international opportunity, especially in places like Asia and the Middle East. And an interesting statistic that kind of explains Square's market potential is that they have um, only about two-thirds of businesses around the world accept credit card payments at this time. Um, The payment volumes 
expected to reach roughly $50 trillion a year within the next 10 years. And Square is currently processing about $60 billion a year. So this is a big, big market opportunity. And I think that if they keep doing what they're doing and doing it well and managing risk like they're doing, the $30 a share could seem very cheap. So I'm glad that we're talking about Square after MasterCard. Because as I mentioned, you know, you have some of these new entrants to the payment space piggybacking off of legacy infrastructure. And lo and behold, here's one of them. It's almost like we planned out the show. <laughs> um, but you know, you think about how most consumers interact, you know, with Square. They're they're out at farmers markets, mm-hmm. um, you know, or some type of like trade show or something like that, and they are, you know, swiping their credit card on one of Square's digital readers, one of those little dongles that you plug into, like an iPhone or an iPad or something like that. Um, that's kind of how we think about their business. That leans pretty heavily on the legacy credit card processors. Right. And it's interesting because Square is really focusing on the huge market opportunity in payment processing. And this is something that also very much affects MasterCard. But the fact of the matter is that worldwide, about 15% of payments are coming through on credit and debit card transactions, about 85% in cash and check. And so while Dear listeners, probably for many of you, certainly for me and Dylan, the vast majority of our lives are credit card based. You know, I spend cash and checks, let's see, my rent check, maybe two or three other things a month. You know, usually actually at a farmer's market when they don't have Square yet. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, most of the world still isn't operating that way. And so that's a big opportunity potentially for both MasterCard and Square. And I think that this market feels a lot like the e commerce market to me, mm-hmm. where it feels like because of our everyday, you know, like oh, I just ordered something off Amazon like before the show. Right. You know, like it was something that I easily could have gotten at a brick and mortar store. And yet, I think within the US, like 10% of like total payments or, or total retail activity mm-hmm. is online. You know, the vast majority of it is brick and mortar. So, while your everyday might have you in this mind of like okay, everything's digital. Like this this has to be pretty far down the growth runway at this point, this mega trend. Nope. Like there's still a large way to go worldwide in particular, but even within the US. Right. And the fact of the matter is, if in the US we're still at 90, 10, something like that, then that means that worldwide, you know, it's more like spitballing here, 99, 1 or something along those lines. And looking at Square's business, um, they are moving outside of this reliance strictly on transaction payment and, and you know, processing that, um, or, or facilitating, I should say. They are not processing. Um, <laughs> but you know, they, they are looking to get into the capital game and, and kind of the loan game as well. And that's something that they've seemed to do pretty well uh, doing so far. I mean, you look at what they've done in terms of um, making loans available, and their default rates are crazy low for the industry. I think they're in like the low single digits. Um, most banks would be pretty envious of that kind of track record. Um, and, and I think that that really speaks to what financial institution type businesses can do when they have an alternative data set. The other piece for that, I think, is that you look at Square, they're also getting into payroll, they're getting into accounting, they're getting into a lot of the sort of back office issues that a lot of small businesses face. And their hope is to sort of create this one-stop shop that businesses can just use. Okay, yes, we're using Square for sort of everything so that they don't have to think about, oh, okay, we've got to put this in QuickBooks and then we've got to you know, move over with this other vendor for this other thing. But if they can get that all kind of under one house, then that's an opportunity for them to really get sticky relationships with these businesses and scale with them, particularly on the capital side, as they get bigger. 
Yeah, anytime I see a business like this, I always want to see them building out their portfolio of offerings, right? Mm-hmm. Because the more and more something starts to look and feel like a one-stop shop, the stickier it's going to be for the end users, the small businesses that are trying to get off the ground. And if they have something set up where it scales with the success of the business, you know, that's going to build a nice long-term kind of symbiotic relationship. Yeah, and the fact of the matter is, most businesses aren't really passionate about getting the best possible pay software, right? What they're really passionate about is getting paid, right? And so if somebody can make that easy for them and cheap, that's going to be a very clear win. And frankly, when you look at Square, they are not profitable. That's okay because they are putting a lot of money into this R&D to make sure that they stay kind of ahead of any competition and can really create that one-stop shop that long-term will hopefully drive really tremendous profits for shareholders. Matt mentioned that they are an expensive stock, and I certainly wouldn't disagree, especially after the run they've gone on so far this year. But um, you, know, you look at their financials, and they've been posting roughly 20% revenue growth. And, and I think when you, make, when you see them making these other investments, that gives you some sense and some hope that I think they can continue doing that long-term, even as you know, their, their kind of bread and butter um, square processing or facilitating, I made that mistake again, um, <laughs> square transaction facilitating dongles um, and, and the market for small businesses for that type of stuff um, reaches a little bit more saturation. If they're able to really build out that portfolio of things, um, the long-term growth runway for them looks really interesting. Yes. So, when you think about both Square and MasterCard, think of them as two different ways to play on similar, not exactly the same, but very similar megatrends. And I would say if you are interested in stocks that are sort of on the safer side, but perhaps don't offer quite as much upside, MasterCard can be a really interesting stock. And on the flip side, Square is a lot more speculative, but is a lot more upside. Of course, that also means a lot more risk. And so you kind of have to balance what makes sense for your portfolio. And I think, you know, for context, Square is about a tenth of the size of MasterCard <laughs> right. right now. Um, so, so there's that. And, and I think even looking at the relationship that these two companies have, it's pretty clear to me that this is not a, you know, one one company taking all type space. You know, you, you think about how I, I said it before. I'll touch on it again. You know, the the legacy processing infrastructure for MasterCard is something that enables Square's business. Well, Square's also taking a lot of transactions that would not be credit card enabled and and putting them on that platform that otherwise they would be cash. And and so it's creating business for MasterCard. It's a, a niche that Square can operate in. Um, I think there are a lot of players that can win with this trend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and turn to our number three, Berkshire Hathaway. I'm Dan Kaplinger. I cover stocks in all kinds of sectors for The Motley Fool, and today I am pitching Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, It's my oldest holding, bought back in 1999, and it has delivered pretty amazing returns for me without too much effort, which is exactly what a good, conservative, yet long-time horizon investor wants from a stock. The business is incredible. It basically involves Warren Buffett taking money that he takes from premiums from insurance company uh, products and investing it in businesses that produce really amazing returns. And that is the recipe for success. It's been a big boost to the stock. And now more than ever, it's a really good business to be in. Um, The insurance business is kind of a funky deal in that even though when big loss events happen, they have a big short-term impact, the long-term impact on profitability can be really positive. So, take the environment that we find ourselves in now. Uh, Major hurricanes having hit 
highly populated areas in Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, and elsewhere in the Gulf Coast region. That's going to cause big losses for Berkshire in the short run. But what it's going to allow the company to do is to raise premiums going forward in the long run. That's going to more than make up for the losses that get suffered and lead to more revenue and more profit for Warren Buffett to deploy in any way that he sees fit. With such a big conglomerate that includes so many different businesses, all focused on developing profit, I don't have to worry when I have my shares of Berkshire Hathaway that anything's going to get in the way of long-term future success. So, I think something that Dan did a really good job there is breaking down Berkshire's core business mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of just explaining the mechanisms that give them this money to work with. Right. Um, maybe it's worth spending a little bit of time just talking about what he does with that money and what he has historically done with that with that money. Sure. And I think it's also important for those who are familiar with insurers, regularly insurers talk about investing their float. And most of them invest their float in short-term bonds. And so, their returns have been pretty awful lately, actually, <laughs> because, well, frankly, Low, insur- low interest rates mean that those bonds are going to tend to yield relatively little, which means that when they're reinvesting that float, they're, they're not getting much of a return for it. And of course, the problem with float is that often you're running a slight loss in your underwriting to get that float to then generate returns, and then of course you end up having to pay out that float in claims, especially when major natural disasters strike. One of the interesting things about Berkshire Hathaway is they've run an underwriting profit for the last 14 years. Now, 2017 is not over, so we'll see how things go this year. But that's a pretty darn strong track record of being able to, again, have that float and then also recognize, know that not all of it's going to get eaten up because they're able to price so aggressively and so thoughtfully. So let's talk about those other businesses now to circle around to your original question. Thank you for getting back to what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, no problem. Well, I figured this is a good beginning primer to sort of give us the background as to why he's able to deploy this capital so with such a long term mindset instead of the sort of short term or medium-term bonds we see a lot of other insurers in. So, he does essentially two things with that money. Either buys businesses, so these are things like BNSF Railway, uh, Dairy Queen, Fruit of the Loom, a lot of brands that you'll recognize, and probably a few that you won't, with the basic idea that he can buy this company for a certain price, have a management group that he really trusts, Continue running that company. That's actually one of his kind of core metrics: is that he wants management that he can trust running it, and then he basically gives them the additional capital they need to scale appropriately. So if you think about this, and we talked about this on financials either last week or the week before, I think it was last week. You can buy a company, let's say that the market says is worth a billion dollars. You buy it for a billion five. So instantly it's like, oh, well, you've lost some money. But perhaps that company. If given another billion, let's say, so you put two and a half billion total into it, with that extra money, it might be able to scale and then be worth 10 billion in five years. Well, suddenly your returns look really, really good. And this is what Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett in particular are very good at. The second thing that they do is buy stocks and buy significant shares of those stocks. So we're talking some really well known companies like Wells Fargo and Coca Cola. Berkshire Hathaway is so big that they kind of tend to go for large cap stocks because they can't really buy small caps and meaningfully move the needle for Berkshire Hathaway anymore just because it's so darn big at this point. So this leads into um, something that even as a kind of casual financials follower, mm-hmm. I, I'm like somewhat privy to. Um, but this idea that, you know, Berkshire Hathaway has gotten so large 
that for them to really meaningfully move the needle, like whatever they need to be buying or whatever they need to be taking a stake in, needs to be pretty big. Like they can't really do it with small businesses. So, like, is that something that at a certain point kind of hinders growth for them? Absolutely. And Buffett's been very upfront about that, actually, that he basically says, listen, <laughs> there are tremendous opportunities that are just not big enough for Berkshire to go after. I mean, think about it this way Buffett could spend a million bucks a day on behalf of Berkshire, you know, buying companies, and it would not move the needle at all. This company is so big <laughs> that it just doesn't matter. And so you really have to look at kind of larger scale transactions when you're in that, in that mindset. And so that, by its very nature, these larger scale transactions, they're in stocks or companies that are better known, that are perhaps more heavily covered. And so it's harder to find a really amazing deal. And so that's something that is going to continue to plague Berkshire. But as an investor, if you're buying shares of Berkshire, what you're really doing is saying, hey, Warren Buffett, I, I trust you with my money. <laughs> Take <laughs> like, my money. <laughs> I think you're going to do a pretty good job, right? I mean, that's, that's really what this boils down to. Right. And Buffett has been upfront about the possibility that buybacks and maybe even dividends one day could be on the table if he can't find better ways to allocate that capital. But it's pretty clear to me, at least, that Buffett still thinks he can find ways to allocate that capital effectively. Um, and so that's why you've seen. I think the last time they paid a dividend was in the 1960s, and buybacks haven't really been an issue either. Uh, as Buffett has said, it's been very difficult to purchase Berkshire's shares because he has a certain threshold, which is no more than 120% book value, at which point he might be willing to buy back shares, and Berkshire just regularly trades well above that. So there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, and we've got a lot more detail on Berkshire and on MasterCard and on Square some really top-notch resources that we've put together. Uh, shoot us a notice at industryfocus@full.com. We'll be happy to send those along. I- I've also got a great piece that Matt Frankel, who you heard pitching Square, uh, wrote, which breaks down Berkshire, uh, sorry, Buffett's investing process step by step. And I think that's really useful in terms of new investors and trying to really understand how to approach stocks. Might as well learn from one of the best stock pickers ever. Yeah, I mean, you could do a lot worse, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, cool, Dylan. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. It was, it was nice to hop on the show. I always love doing the show with you. Yeah, ditto. So it's nice for me to get to return the favor since I've been on tech so many times. So that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments? You can always reach us at industryfocus@full.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. For example, I own Berkshire and Mastercard, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by the ever awesome Austin Morgan. For Dylan Lewis, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and full on.